Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. If you try to do everything, you will break. Mm. That's the voice of Irina Shklovsky. And Irina did try to do everything, and she did break. Irina is a professor at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, and she shares with us her really powerful and moving story about her burnout experiences. In part one here, she talks about how she got there and having amazingly supportive department and colleagues that caught her when she did break. Tied up in that journey to burnout is a range of issues, trying to straddle two departments, working out how she defines her scholarship, starting at a new uni during COVID, the downside of the upside of getting grants, and what it's like getting to the point of not being able to function and having to ask for help. I said, Casper, I'm in trouble. I, I, I don't think I can do this. I am, I'm too tired. I, I can no longer think straight. I can no longer contribute. I, I'm just in a fog. There are so many lessons here for all of us, and I'm really grateful to Irina for her vulnerability and honesty in this discussion. My name is Irina Shklovsky. I'm at the University of Copenhagen, Department of Computer Science, and a little bit in the Department of Communication. So split departments. Well, it used to be 50-50, now it's 80-20. But then, since I can't settle down, I decided it would be great to have a 20% guest appointment at Lindtropen University in the Gender Studies Department. <laughs> so, starting in September, I'll be 60-20-20. I collect them. How do you manage that to ensure that you are 60-20-20? Because I it's imagine a risk is that everyone, even though you're only 20, by the time you go to a faculty meeting there, you've used up your 20, but people still expect work or whatever. So How it's do you not manage it? possible to manage it. So I know I'm signing up for more work overall. I think the Linshirping uh, position, because it is geographically separated and because there are, um, I have committed to spending four weeks a year in mm. Linshirping. So geographically and temporarily, that is very circumscribed. I'm hoping that I can then basically allocate just a couple of hours a week outside of that for all of my tripping related issues. However, given the fact that I will have I'll be the primary advisor of a PhD student there and a primary advisor of a postdoc there, that is likely going to become a challenge at some point. But actually, split positions are very difficult. I struggled a lot. I started my position as 50-50 in communication and computer science at the University of Copenhagen. Um, 
compounded by the fact that I started one week before the first COVID lockdown. Oh. So that was exciting. Mm. And the goal was, the reason for my position was to bring more collaborative capacity and activity across the two departments. None of which happened because for the first year I didn't really meet anybody. Of course. Because I started and about 10 days later everything locked down. I didn't really even have an office in computer science yet. <laughs> so I met people on Zoom. But that turns out to be quite difficult to really do anything with. When you don't have an existing relationship, especially, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. So I struggled for a while and then, and the intention was that the first semester when I started, I wasn't teaching. I was going to spend, I expected myself to spend a lot of time having coffees and getting to know people and going to meetings and just kind of finding out what the departments were like. Instead, I spent that time homeschooling my child. And like everybody else, uh, getting being locked down and figuring out what the hell's going on. And then in the fall, my second semester, I started teaching. Again, it was COVID, it was, at least in Denmark, it was partial lockdown, so it's not like a lot of people were there, everybody was, was, was wearing masks. It, you couldn't really meet people all that well anyway. Mm. So yeah, um, after a while I asked my both of my heads of department, like, what do I do? And they said, look, we're not expecting anything at this point. Just figure something out. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's essentially what I did. I sort of bumbled along and, and I realized that being half and half in two very, very, very different parts of the university. Do you mean physically? Well, also physically. Okay. So the, the two departments are, di are separate physically. It's a 30-minute bike ride between the two. Um, they're in two different faculties that have different rules, different norms, different expectations. It's kind of like being in two different universities at the same time. And I realized it just wasn't working for me because when you're new and you're starting someplace new, you can't be halfway there. It's when all the meetings are important. You can't choose. You actually have to show up to all the faculty meetings and the section meetings and the, and the research meetings and, and because it's the only way to build a relationship and create a presence. Um, and if you're doing it in two departments, that's a hell of a lot of meetings. That's a lot of meetings. <laughs> and at the same time, you're meeting people who are also who want to grab a coffee, who want to get to know you. Again, that's a lot of meetings. Two departments are worth, worth of people and two very large departments worth of people, that's a lot. And so it's actually impossible. It is impossible to feel like you have arrived in both departments. And COVID, of course, made it more difficult. So after about a year and a half, I started feeling like I understood how the computer science department worked. Mm. And I still felt like I had no idea how the communications department worked. Did you have a physical office by that stage? And did you have an office in both locations? And let me tell me tell you, having two different offices is not a gift. <laughs> <laughs> I had to create a system to, to keep track of where my books are, 
which office they're in <laughs> because otherwise I kept losing them and forgetting and because the classes are quite far apart it's uh, it's a challenge. You're not just dropping in next door to have a quick check. No, not at all. So, so that has been that has been, and so I actually realized that I needed to reduce my position in communications to something much smaller, so that I didn't feel the pressure of needing to be calm, a solid part of that department, without really having the capacity to do that. Mm. Um, and now as I dropped it to 20%, it now feels like I am spending just 20% of my time there. Because I'm like, okay, I'm there once a week. For a whole day? Usually for a day. Yeah. But it's okay, because I'm there once a week, I'm part of a center, we have a meeting, and it's much better because I, at least I feel like I'm I am doing those 20% of my presence there is kind of engaged. Mm. Um, 50-50 is incredibly difficult to figure out, especially if it's a new, new, new institution. But are you still expected to go to all the meetings or do you just really just engage with the centre? From the start I said, look, I'm not going to go to all the meetings. And then I realised that was actually not possible mm. if I wanted to become part of the department. Um, so now I have to choose. and so. I've still I've decided that I want to become a stronger and more central part of computer science, and I'm going to focus on that. Mm -hmm. And I will spend less time um, on communication for now. And it's a choice, but I had to make a very distinct choice because otherwise, you end up with feeling like you need to be part of it to perform that, and nobody can tell you what that needs to look like. But everybody kind of expects you to know how a department works mm. and who is there and what they do, but that takes enormous amounts enormous. of time to figure out. Even when you're full-time, an enormous amount of time. And so I had to actually accept the fact that I cannot fulfill the original goal for what I was hired for, mm. and that I needed to give myself time and space to provide myself a basis from which to begin building that. But it wasn't something that I could build off the bat. Of course, COVID didn't help. Mm. Yeah. How did you decide for computer science and not comms? I think for a long time, when I did my PhD, I was really, I was in the Human Computer Interaction Institute at Carnegie Mellon University, which is part of computer science. And I remember being so extremely frustrated with feeling, always feeling like the social science and more humanities work I did was seen as something extra and not interesting and not important or needing to provide something usable for computer science and otherwise not valued. And so for a while there I shifted and I moved much more towards communications and social sciences and more humanities and spent some time uh, you know, building relationships with people in STS and developing I think a sort of a critical tool set but more recently, my work has turned around, and I realized that what I have, at least in what I want to do, it may be far more effective in computer science than in communication. Because I, what I want to do is actually take that critical tool set and move it towards the technical mm -hmm. practice. That I love critique, and I think looking critically at 
technology and its impacts on society and what happens and how we do things and why and what are the power relationships and the institutional configurations, I think it's really important. But I'm much, much more bothered by how the hell do we change that. I'm much, much more bothered by the so what and by why have we ended up here and how do mm. we do something differently mm. and for that I need to speak to computer science and an only way to speak to computer science is to be part of it and to understand it well um, because otherwise critique is just critique and it's, nobody wants to be just critiqued and be told that they're wrong mm. So that's been the journey. What was your undergraduate degree? Just curious. I have two bachelors in psychology and on art history, and I have a math and minor in mathematics. <laughs> and I almost had enough credits to do a minor in computer science, but I never got around to it. I got mm-hmm. distracted by skiing. <laughs> So a really interesting mixed background. I'm curious about the journey from more criticality to more impact and the so what. Can you say any more about that? Like, was there a time when you were just happy sitting more with the, the, the critical perspectives? Well, when I was a PhD student, I remember walking into my advisor's office and my advisor is Bob Kraut and saying, Bob, I mean, I want what I do to kind of make a difference. I mean, like, why? What's the point? What's the point Mm. of doing this? And he looked at me and he said, you're in the wrong business then. We do research for research's sake. You're supposed to do it because it's interesting. And then sometimes it makes a difference. You don't have much control over that. (laughs) And I understand that position, and I was never comfortable with it, and it was never enough. Okay. And I think I shifted... I shifted and really enjoyed gaining a much more critical tool set and reading a broader swath of literature and engaging in these debates across the different communities, in part because I was never satisfied with one community's position on anything, mm-hmm. and in part because I get distracted really easily. And I'm interested in too many different things. and and so. I think for me that was beneficial that now I, I, I can understand and engage with a lot of different debates and I can just understand where people come from and why they make the arguments they do. And that in fact now allows me to think about how do we make all of that impactful and potentially useful in changing how we make things. Mm. And I think it was necessary to go through that. And eventually you sort of realize that you have to pick your battles. You can't do it all. So I, I eventually realized that I was much more interested in trying to talk to people who will vehemently disagree with me rather than those that would agree with me. And trying to figure out how do you present artistic research to Kai rather than artistic research to an artistic graph, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because I think that actually that has a different kind of impact. That bringing these different positions 
can then begin to get people to think differently. Mm. Like I have a new course that I'm designing for the masters of computer science. And I'm trying to figure out if there is a way I can smuggle phenomenology into a computer science course without them actually quite noticing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it seems like you're comfortable being uncomfortable then, because in seeking out people who disagree or not just speaking to the community who would understand exactly what you're doing, but speaking to a community where you, what you're speaking about or the way you may be speaking is a little bit different because you think you can make a difference. That's work. That's additional work to do, all of that. You know, I think uh, partly this has to do maybe with my own background, is that, you know, coming from Kazakhstan and and moving to the U.S. and always being in between. Um, once you move at that age, you're not really one or the other. You're sort of in between. Am I Soviet, post-Soviet, most definitely? Am I American? There's certainly a part of it. I've lived in Denmark for a significant portion of life. Am I Danish? Well, definitely not, but I am no longer either American or from Kazakhstan in, 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 in predictable ways. Mm. I think it's also because when I was doing my PhD, I was different in that I did a social science PhD in the School of Computer Science. Um, and I remember at my defense, somebody asked me, how is any of this HCI? <laughs> <laughs> and and so I think it's, in many ways, I find that I'm comfortable in in, these, in this in-between space. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a, I mean, it's not a comfortable space. No. Right? No, from what you've said, it's not a comfortable space. It's not a comfortable space because you always have to pick your arguments and mm. figure them out and mm. figure out how do you, how do you position yourself and argue in a way that you might, you know, eventually be heard. But I also find it more productive and interesting. And so I just inhabit that. Mm. And I like a good argument. <laughs> it's fascinating. We, we bring our whole selves to research, don't we? Like your in-betweenness, you've just talked about it playing out in multiple dimensions of who you are, what makes you you. But isn't that the point? The point that, especially if you think about it, um, from the way we reflect now on research with the push to identify your own positionality with the push to really identify that we want to avoid the God trick we want to we want to make sure that everything is partial in your perspectives matter it is we always bring ourselves it's just often we don't quite notice that mm. We, we don't notice, we don't recognise where and how it influences. And you say that we're now more encouraged to reflect on our positionality and that, but not all research areas do. There are still many out there that sure. do this depersonalised knowledge production, depersonalised, decontextualised knowledge production. Absolutely. I mean, right, there's normative expectations and science hmm. we've built science to fundamentally gain its legitimacy from 
working as hard as possible to not be political, to be separate from politics. That's the whole point of how science gets mm-hmm. its legit, leg- legitimacy. Mm-hmm. No wonder. Um, it also sort of reflects Bob's response as well, in a way. Yeah, to some extent, yes. Mm-hmm. But I think I understand. I completely understand now that position, the position where, where I think there is... Eventually, I had to decide that I wanted to fight this fight and not that one. That these are the things I was interested in and not those. Mm -hmm. And that my scholarship will always be defined by my interests. And in the end, he's right. It is what's interesting to me that's going to drive me. But then my actions and my activities, what I do, I always sort of beat up on myself for not writing enough. But in part, that's because I spend a hell of a lot more time giving talks and, uh, but giving talks outside of the academy on writing non-academic pieces or putting together reports with nonprofits and things like that, in part because that's the kind of impact that I want to make and I find is really important. And of course, it's also driven by my interest. But in the end, I think Bob is also right. You never know what's going to make impact. And if something does make impact, that's just luck. Mm-hmm. But if you put yourself into something, sometimes it might. Yeah. In talking about um, beating yourself about not writing papers and you know, doing these other forms of output, to what extent is that a privilege of your current position? Because you have an, like a tenured, full professor position in a respected department. University. Full professor position, certainly. Tenured, absolutely not. You don't have tenure. Denmark does not. No. Denmark does not have tenure. So do you have regular evaluation cycles then? Um, to some extent, the system is different. It's not that we have regular... Well, yes, we do have regular evaluation cycles where we are evaluated overall as a department. We're evaluated um, sort of on the section level. Um, there are certainly career development, um, annual career development meetings and processes like that. But also, our contracts state that it's at will employment. At any moment, the university can decide they want to shift mm-hmm. direction and give me six months' notice. So, is there any career risk to you in choosing to write an article for a non profit or for some other external body versus an, another journal paper? I don't see it that way, in part mm-hmm. because I think. Um, at least where and what I do impact still matters. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I do produce quite a bit of academic writing. I think mostly the beating myself up is for, I actually want to write these papers. Right. Um, and because it, that's the other thing, you eventually figure out. Um, if you try to do everything, you will break. Mm-hmm. And. I've learned through experience that everything's a choice. And if you want us to do something, you're giving up something else. Mm-hmm. 
And that's just how it is. Time isn't stretchy. It isn't, is it? No. We it's really the, like to think that it is, but it's really no, not. It's the one thing we cannot control. No. Not an extra second no. in our day. Can you share a little bit more about that journey? Because you've had quite a journey there, haven't you, to get to this position? I have. You know, there's an aspect to being an academic is that there's a lot of things that can begin to happen. You know, you try and you strive and you, you write a bunch of grant proposals and you try to put your networks together. And then there's a moment that all of that happens and it's also happy and it's all happy, but suddenly when it rains and pours and there's just not enough of you. And the interesting thing in the academy, right, we act like, you know, it's a little bit of an entrepreneurship model. You have to go after things and get them. And when you do, it's just more work. Mm. in the end yeah right um you know the good news is you won the bad news is you now have to do this grant proposal and you have to really deliver right um and it's always there i don't think we account for that i don't think i think it takes quite a lot to account for just the amount of work all of this takes and it's really easy to put yourself in a position where what you want to do is so many things there's not enough of you And I ended up having to coordinate an EU um, Horizon grant. I'd never even had an EU grant before. I had no idea what it entailed at all. And I suddenly ended up being the coordinator for this 2 million euro thing with like six partners across four countries. And you, you put this proposal together. You led the proposal. Like it wasn't just taking over the coordination from someone else. No, no, I led the proposal, yeah. but initially the first couple of times we applied, somebody else was supposed to coordinate, and then they stepped out, and the last time we applied, and was like, okay, well, I'll step in. So this, this is a topic that you've had multiple goes with. Right. And when it got funded, it was exciting, and then I realized, mm. well, we made mistakes in writing it, because I had no idea how to write an EU proposal. I'd never done it before. <laughs> now I know. Mm. Um, and I, I put a lot of myself into it, and I didn't even get a lot of publications or things coming out of it. I, I still, I feel there's a lot to be written. I just haven't had the capacity to write it. But it, it took so much to do the coordination, to do the management, to do the kind of emotional and people work that's required to make all of this happen. Not to mention deliverables for the EU, which are a lot of work as well. And I never quite given myself a break. Mm. And so the idea was I was going to switch jobs. I was going to, and my project was ending. It was ending in December. And I was like, okay, I am going to start my job in March. So going, which switch are you talking so about? So I was switching here? from ITU to mm -hmm. University of Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. So the coordination of the grant happened while you were at ITU. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was finishing the grant. And then I'll have three months. I will take a break. And then two months I'll take a break. And on March 1st I will start at the University of Copenhagen. It'll be great. Did not happen that way at all. I had to finish the grant. The grant also took the finishing of the grant, even though 
officially it stopped in December, took another two months. There was no break. I finished one, started started the other, started the new job, COVID happened. And it was just really, it kept going and kept going and kept going. And I had a new job and I needed to perform and I needed to teach and then there was COVID and then there was, and I kept going. Eventually I noticed I stopped reading. I would try to read and I would get through half a paper and I wouldn't be able to finish it. But then I would be stressed out and needing to finish something else and then then I noticed writing got a lot harder. But I could still really sort of power through and get things down just a lot slower. By the time the fall of 22 arrived, I realized I was in serious trouble. What was that time period? So this was all during COVID. This was between so, 2020. Mm-hmm. I started the job in 2020. Mm-hmm. That's when COVID started. Mm-hmm. And so 2022, fall of 2022, I was two years of my new job. Mm-hmm. And it was also the finishing and, end. Of and the EU grant was a three-year, four-year? It was so a three-year So it's a three-year before then and then going straight into this. Mm-hmm. Which, what would be an incredibly stressful time for anyone embedded in an organisation, let alone starting somewhere new and trying to straddle two departments. And trying to straddle two departments and having to deal with sort of the pandemic, the lockdown mm. and everything else. And I also, I was, I had, um, I had a new grant that got funded also in 2020. So in 2021, we hired, I, I had three PhD students that started in 2021. We went through this enormous hiring procedure. So in fall of 2021, it was in fall of 2021, I realized I was failing. I mm-hmm. was, I was, I stopped, stopped reading. I stopped, I stopped being able to write. I was teaching and I walked into my section head's office and it's Gaspar Hornbeck and I said, Gaspar, I'm in trouble. Uh, I, I, I don't think I can do this. I am, I'm too tired. I, I can no longer think straight, I can no longer contribute, I, I'm just in a fog. And he looked at me and said, why don't you take a break and don't teach? I believe you mean I have a course. The next week, Casper walked somebody into my office and said, this person is going to take over your course um, for the next month. Just give him all the materials. It was shocking. The course was developed, I developed it the year before, had all the materials, and it was amazing. I suddenly was like, oh. And I thought that was gonna be enough. It was gonna mm-hmm. be enough to just step back mm-hmm. and to be able to, and it wasn't. I was writing on an ERC synergy proposal with two colleagues, and I suddenly realized that what was happening was they would, they would be like, okay, you need to write this part because this is your part. And I would try and I wouldn't be able to. So then we'd have a phone call and I would speak and I would talk, we would have a discussion. Then they would write it for me and send it to me and say, is this what you meant? And I would edit it and send it back. I could not produce my own text. Did you tell them that you were feeling just worn out or were they just nice colleagues who did that? We had a discussion and I suddenly realized, look, you guys, I'm having real trouble. I'm, I'm, having, I'm having a problem and, and I'm clearly I'm 
I, I need to go and take leave, I'm not doing well. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay. Mm-hmm. And we submitted the proposal. And I had other things that I wanted to finish, because at that point, my department and Casper and everybody said, I really know, really, you need to go and sick leave. This is not working. Mm. This is really not working. And I was terrified. I was terrified because I had all these things that I wanted to do. I had all these things that I had lined up. I had three students in the first six months of their PhD. Mm. I had other projects that needed to happen. I had a course that needed to finish. I had all of these things and suddenly my department said, just leave. Just go on sick leave. And it was one of the scariest things to do. And I had a long conversation with my colleague, Pernilla Bjorn at the time, who said, it will be okay. Just do it. And I, I, I realized I had no other option. Mm-hmm. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't even really give a coherent talk of any kind. I could barely formulate what I wanted to express. I was not capable of performing my job in any way. Mm-hmm. It was really bad. And so I stopped. Mm. And my department was amazing. They sounded. They stepped in. I was papers chair for Nordic Guy at the time. And and I emailed Eve Hogan, who was the general chair, and I said, Eve, I'm I I can't do this. She's like, fine. And so Susanna Bodker stepped in as an extra papers chair in my stead for a while until I got on my feet and, and she said, fine, no big deal. And I emailed my colleagues and I said, I have these students and you know, can you please take care of the school supervisors? And they said, fine, we'll do it. And then I didn't open my email for a month and a half. And I found that I, I just, I wandered the city for a couple of weeks. I read silly sci-fi. I watched a lot of, I realized I hadn't watched TV for, 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 for a while. I watched TV. I went and saw movies. <laughs> and it was coming up on Christmas. I did shopping. Christmas shopping. I think it's the only year people actually got Christmas presents from me because I had the time to do Christmas shopping <laughs> for once in my life. <laughs> and I couldn't sustain it for longer than that. <laughs> what, longer than a month and a half? Yes. So I slowly kind of came back, but I still, mm. I knew I still, I was not well. I was mm. really not well. Mm. So I want to come back to that, um, but it sounds incredibly amazing, 
you know, that first time you went into Casper's office and just said, I can't do this, what did it take for you to, to get to that point? I think for me it's always been extremely difficult to admit that I needed help. Hmm. And so it was pretty it was it was a pretty big deal for me to basically walk into Casper's office and say, I need help. Mm, that's what I'm just wondering. But also at that point I realized that I was not able to do what needed to be done. I was not able to teach the way I wanted to teach. I was not able to engage with my students the way I wanted to engage with my students. Mm-hmm. And I, I think at a certain point I panicked. I panicked, I went into his office and I said, I think I need help. Because mm-hmm. you did use words like power on and things like that before when you were recognising that you were starting to have struggle reading or writing but you powered on powered on so this uh, pressure on yourself I know that I should have taken a break probably even before I started my new job Mm -hmm. I know that I was burnt out then already but there was always something else to do and there was always something else that just needed to be done and I think it's really easy to fall into this process where you're like but I just need to get this done and then things will be a lot easier and then I'll just rest. I love that. I just and then. I just need to and then it will be better. It never actually happens. Mm, No. But it's really easy to convince yourself that that's something you need to do. Mm. And that's as long as you get just this one hill, just this one hill and then it'll be all downhill from there and it'll be easy. I think we all say that to mm. ourselves. And I just dragged it out too long. And it's taken me nearly two years to begin coming back to a point where I feel like I have control and capacity to do the work in the way I want it done. So control and capacity. And it's taken a lot to learn that sometimes I might want to do things, but my body is telling me to stop and I have to stop now. Mm-hmm. How does your body tell you? How does your body tell you? Because I mean, all our bodies tell us in different ways. My body, my body is funny, my body tells that to me with random inflammations and my doctors always get very confused. When I show up, for example, with like, I get this sudden elbow tendinitis and everybody's like, did you hurt it? Did you hit it? Did you, nope, just developed. It's my body telling me to settle the hell down and not use my arm for a while and it's annoying but 
how I know that that is. I've pushed really far when that starts begins to happen. So, and I know. So when your body starts telling you, like you get an inflammation somewhere, um, in the beginning, did you realize that that's what was going on? When that started happening, I realized I needed to pay attention. Uh-huh. But until I went on sick leave and actually really paid attention, I really began to pay attention to what was going on with me. And I realized I hadn't paid attention to me for quite a long time. It's easy to ignore. And then I started noticing. When I was coming back, I, I was off for about a month and a half, and then I started coming back, and everybody was like, don't come back too fast. Come back slowly. Mm. I could tell when I was going too fast. I would suddenly get sick. I would suddenly get these random inflammations. I suddenly, my body would just push me back. But because I was cautious, I started noticing that. Mm-hmm. And I've learned. I've learned to pay attention. Mm. I've learned to be okay to, with being like, okay. I can't say yes to things now. And I've also learned to try and plan a little bit for times when I know that the pressure and the level of demands is going to be high. Mm -hmm. um, but I still struggle with making sure I don't overdo things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The past me always thought that something that I'm signed up for is going to be a good idea. <laughs> I know. The current me is not quite so sure most of the time. You talked about, you, you try to plan now, like one of the things you've learned is to recognize when there may be coming up periods of increased pressure and planning more. What might that look like practically? And that's where we leave it now for part one. If you recognise some of Irina's story as your own and you're also about to break, please, I hope you're able to find the support you need to step back and stop and get help and know that you're not alone in this. And if you're not yet at the breaking point, I'm curious what has struck for you here that you might use to stop yourself breaking? What do you take away? For me, there were the reminders about reflecting more on the pressures I put on myself and the stories I tell myself about just this one more thing and then it will be better. About learning to listen more to my body and also about paying more attention to my future self when I'm making decisions. And one thing that really struck me in this was the power of having amazing colleagues. And for Irina, amazing colleagues who didn't hesitate to step in and support. And it makes me think about how we can be those support people for others around us. 
And we'll all take our turn, I'm sure, in needing to reach out for help at some stage. It's the give and take of academia. So we'll be back next week with part two, where Irina goes on and shares much more of the practical strategies about how she's managing the return to work and managing the the workload and trying to take care of herself there. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.